Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm so excited that you've joined me for today's show. And before we get going with the great topic I have for you, let me just review some upcoming announcements. We are just in the throes of planning our fall conference season with TeachMeToTalk.com. Uh, our event in Chicago, July 31st and August 1st, is sold out, and that always makes me happy. The second event in the Chicago area, August 14th and 15th, is almost sold out. So if you are waiting for the last minute, you probably aren't going to get a seat. So go ahead and register for that as soon as possible so we can be sure that we'll get you in. We are also looking at going back to Central Texas. Uh, we're looking at San Marcos, and I think I have the date on that. I believe it's October 17th, and we're doing Building Verbal Imitation Skills and Toddlers there, a one-day conference. We're also looking at several other cities, New Orleans. We're looking at a downstate Illinois event because we've had some requests for that. Uh, we're also looking at a couple of places that we've – smaller places that we've been – before and are excited to go back because we've gotten some great emails from folks over the years. We're looking at Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Evansville, Indiana. Uh, and then we're also thinking about a Georgia event. So if you live in any of those places, get ready. I would love, love, love to see you um, again. And I'll, let me mention uh, one more Louisiana place, Shreveport. We've, really, we've been to Shreveport before, had a fantastic turnout, fantastic time there. So we, we certainly are Considering that location again, too. So I think I mentioned this last week. If you live in a state and you want us to come and bring our course straight to you, our number one factor in determining where we go is access to providers. So if your state has a database for your organization or your um, agency, a database of speech-language pathologists and early interventionists that we can contact directly, I am interested in talking to you. So please email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com, and we will uh, see what we can do about coming to see you. All right, let's move on and talk about today's topic. Today I'm going to be answering questions from a speech-language pathologist, um, and she sent me these questions a while ago and then resent them <laughs> because in the craziness of my summer schedule, I had not responded to her. So I always love it when people... Give me the benefit of the doubt, and if you have, if you've emailed me and haven't heard back, please keep trying because I, I think I've said before too that I get a couple of hundred emails a day, and a lot of days it's just impossible to get through all of them. So if you have a burning question, I would love to hear hear from you. Secondly, let me suggest an even better outlet for that. You can always leave a comment on TeachMeToTalk.com uh, post at. Um, the website there because then everyone gets the benefit of the information and actually that's really how I prefer um, to share information or you can always post something uh, with social media on our social media sites at Facebook at teachmetotalk.com's page or on Twitter. So that's, those are other ways to get in touch with me if you're having difficulty getting your question answered. Again, I like that when everybody can benefit from the answer rather than it being more of a direct message. So this is the, these are the two kiddos that we're going to talk about today. The first one is a three-year-old little girl with Down syndrome. And let me just read through her 
question directly. It's kind of long, and it gives us lots and lots of information. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back and tease it out. And I've certainly treated kids like this, and if you've worked uh, for a while, I bet you are going to recognize the same kinds of issues that uh, this speech-language pathologist is asking me about. Again, I think this, these are pretty um, common questions and common concerns that we have when we are looking at children with Down syndrome. So the first one is a three-year-old little girl. She says, first, curious what your thoughts are with Down syndrome kiddos presenting with dysarthria versus apraxia. And she says, I was reading some interesting speech material that said kids with Down syndrome would be described struggling more with dysarthria than apraxia. I'm confused. Can, it, can a kiddo with Down syndrome present with both low tone and have motor playing issues. She says, I was taught in grad school to treat the symptom, so I'm not big on rushing to get a label because either way you treat what you see through the trial and error at times. I do think, of course, a label can be important for answering questions, determining approaches, or even for insurance and funding for therapy. And so she goes on to give us some really specific information about this little girl's uh, current level of functioning. She says, I've been with this little girl for about three months, and she came to me with about 50 signs and not babbling a whole lot at this time. Now she is way more vocal, and she does like I do. She puts several A's in there <laughs> with that word, and she says there are lots of, there's lots of babbling and attempts to imitate. She says, I'm listening to see if she gets a variety of vowels and using what phonemes she has to pair up with those vowels as she has for consonant vowel combinations. She now has about 15 word approximations, and she goes on to describe them. She says, she says, uh for up, poo for poop, ba, a, a, uh, a for nay, I'm sorry, b for beep, ba for bump, sometimes by, pop, high, and ba for ball, and some others. Mom says she uses about seven to ten words daily. School therapist works with a Kaufman approach, which I like that she's doing it from that angle to expand on her vowels and phonemes at a syllable level. And then she says, but she's using the darn flashcards. The poor little girl does not like to sit at a table and say puff or puppy and then have the therapist say, okay, good, now say pup. And she's real cute how she wrote this. She writes out boring with lots of O's there to exaggerate that. And she says, how is she going to be motivated to even try to say rough or woof or wag her tongue or make a sound when looking at a picture? And she goes on to say, a typical three-year-old would be bored after just a few cards, right? Anyway, should I stay on this track with expanding vowels and playful therapy or pairing those up, consonant vowel or CBCB combos with other phonemes out here or encourage her to produce? She says, also, what do I do with all those signs? I just feel like she's ready to be more and imitate, and I want to move speech more than just signs for communication, especially for her peers' sake to understand her. But at the same time, I don't want to discourage any functional communication for her help. So boy, there's lots of information in there, and this is a, just such a classic example of how we – dissect what's going on when we have a little client like this. She's given us lots and lots of information, and again, I love the detail that she listed there. So let's just back up to the beginning and talk about all things that she commented on and asked about. And First of all, let me say, I think this therapist is certainly on the right track. I love that she's asking for help. I love these kinds of questions that she's coming up with and then her comments about those questions because, again, I think you can 
see how she's walking through all these considerations that she's using when she's in treatment and wanting to make sure she's on the right track diagnostically. And then she says, but that, does that even matter? So let's, first of all, kind of break this down and start at the beginning because she said, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are with kids with Down syndrome presenting with dysarthria versus apraxia. Okay, so let's talk about that. What is dysarthria? We know dysarthria is a neurologically based speech disorder, meaning that it has its origins in brain differences. So it's it's not anything, you know, it's, it's manifested with a kid's mouth. You're going to see lower muscle tone, and we certainly know that kids with Down syndrome can present lower muscle tone, their little faces. Um, they may have that open mouth posture. They may have a little uh, tongue with lots of low tone, meaning that they hold their tongue out. It protrudes out beyond their lip. Uh, you may see, again, that open mouth breathing, um, which could, it's mostly due to the low tone, but I've seen a kid with Down syndrome with allergy kinds of things too. And that may have to do with more with where I live. <laughs> Louisville and the surrounding kind of Kentucky and Anna areas are really known for seasonal allergies, so lots of our little friends can truly struggle with that. And because of the physiological differences with kids with Down syndrome, we know that they have more issues with with ear infections. Lots of our little friends have already gotten tubes. So again, that's just another consideration. Typically, dysarthria is the diagnosis that you're going to see associated with speech intelligibility problems with with Down syndrome. However, it's not their only issue. We certainly know children have, with Down syndrome have some cognitive delays, cognitive differences, challenges in that area. And anytime we know that there are differences with cognition, we also know that there are receptive language problems. It is impossible for a kid to have cognitive challenges, but age-appropriate receptive language. Those two areas go hand in hand. So you won't see a child who ever has receptive language scores that are higher than his cognitive scores if we're truly looking at an assessment. And so certainly those kinds of issues will play a part. I read an article, let me see if I can find it, about this. It's Let's see, I don't know the date on it. Let me see if I can find it. It's written by Sue Buckley, who is an expert on Down syndrome. It's at down-syndrome.org slash reviews slash five slash. So you can look at this, and I'll try to post this link as well. But she, this article is a great summary um, about the kinds of things that we see in children with Down syndrome, and it specifically is related to their language development. And so the speech pathologist that we're discussing today had lots of questions that were more speech-based, but I always want to direct it back to think about language first, meaning that we want to see that communicative intent there. We also know like we've been talking about, how important that cognitive receptive, receptive language link is. So let me just say, too, that many times our little friends with Down syndrome are having more difficulty learning to talk 
because it originates with that cognitive receptive language piece. And so when we jump forward just to think about expressive language or speech intelligibility or getting speech going in the first place, sometimes we're treating something that is, is ahead of where we should be. We should really be focused on taking a step back and helping a child who's struggling with this learn how to understand more words so that when he or she is developmentally ready to talk, he's going to have something to talk about. He's expanded what he knows. He's expanded what he understands. He's made the link between a word and what that object or event or person or whatever happens to be. So the therapist did not mention that that was a concern with this little girl, and it may not apply to her, but any time we're talking about working with a, with a toddler with Down syndrome, we have to be really, really, really sure that we are addressing receptive language with as much focus as we should. And let me just say, I've seen that as a really common mistake. I've treated lots of children with Down syndrome. I've gone to lots of meetings <laughs> As the consultant there, when a child is transitioning from early intervention to preschool services, and lots of times I see these treatment plans that just address uh, expressive language or worse, only address intelligibility when there are some pretty obvious receptive language issues going on too. So I wanted to mention that. Don't forget about that receptive language piece. Another thing that's really interesting, too, that this reminds me of a little girl I saw years and years ago. Her name is Emma Kate, and if you've come to any of my conferences, you've seen darling footage of her. She's just a precious, precious little girl. Has Down syndrome, has bilateral hearing loss. She certainly wears hearing aids. So right there she has two factors that told us she was going to have even more difficulty learning to understand and use language. And here's the deal with Emma Kate, and it may be what's going on with this little girl, too, that we're talking about in the email. But it, just because she could sign a word didn't mean that she necessarily understood it or would consistently respond to identify an object. So let's just say we're playing with two toys, and we're, we had both toys for words that she had signs for. And she would again, be able to demonstrate those signs beautifully, spontaneously, when she would hear me say the word. So let's pretend I would have maybe a monkey and a cat. And if I said to her, get the cat, she might sign cat, but still reach for the monkey. And that tells us on some level she's having difficulty following the direction that we gave her. Does she really not understand the difference between cat and monkey? Has she only linked the sign with what she hears with that auditory representation of that word, or does she really know that sign represents that object, that toy that we're playing with? And again, you can't determine these things unless you're really working with a child and not just in one session. It has to be over time. You have to figure out what mom and dad think about that. You have to see... In different contexts, could it be that she knows, you know, in that specific situation, did she know cat? Did she, um, could she have done that, yet she just really wanted the monkey? 
you know, again, without being with her, it's really hard to determine specifically what was going on. And so I want you to be really, really careful about looking at a child's receptive language skills. And when we're worried so much about expressive language development, that's where we should start when we're thinking about, you know, why isn't she talking more? Why aren't we hearing more words? You know, we have to always go back and really be so careful with making sure that she understands the word so that there's she has the um, the reason to use it, the reason for possibility. And again, this article by Buckley does a nice job of talking about language delay and talking about skills and how they tie in with cognition. Uh, she talks a lot about using language to communicate, using language to learn, and again, not only you know cognitively, but certainly from um, that that communicative and that functional piece. She also goes on to talk a lot about pragmatics and about uh, what might be a determining factor for helping the child acquire more language. She points out some nice, nice studies that talk about the differences in children with Down syndrome, even at, even among that common diagnosis. We know that children have a range of abilities with Down syndrome. We know that some children who talk almost on time, who start to acquire those words at between 12 and 18 months. We also know there's a, a different group of children who are later with their language acquisition skills, and this is probably where this little girl falls. But they become champion signers, and that's certainly something we'll address as we continue to talk about. And, and that certainly that the evidence there supports what I've seen in my own 20-plus uh, year clinical practice. We have lots and lots of kids with Down syndrome who fall into that category. They're not really talking a lot yet, but they certainly understand how to communicate and certainly learn how to use signs very functionally and very spontaneously. So that's certainly something that we want to continue to encourage. This is a, this piece of data that I'm going to talk about now is not in Sue Buckley's um, article, and I really thought she was the person that the author that I had read this statistic from, but I couldn't find it today. So, so I don't have a reference on this, but my experience has been that lots of our little friends with Down syndrome may not truly become verbal or have their language explosion until somewhere between three and five. Now, Sue Buckley's article talks about the language explosion really being commiserate with the child's cognitive abilities or his mental age, meaning that um, usually that happens. We know with toddlers at 17, 18 months, usually when they have about 20 words. Sue Buckley says that, of course, it happens later with our little friends with Down syndrome, and I believe that she says it's closer to 30 months when this happens, but it also correlates nicely with having a vocabulary of about 40 to 50 words. And so... That's important for us to know. That's important information for us to share with parents, too, because it, it gets their expectations in line with what we know other children's experiences have been. But that's not to say that you won't have a kid that differs from that pattern. We certainly know that happens. But I've found that it makes parents feel better if I can soften their expectation a little bit so they don't 
you know, we always want to expect the best, and we always want to um, encourage every little little step along that continuum with acquiring language. But I think it really has helped some parents when I say, you know, we really might not hear words, a lot of words, talking, the amount that you that she's going to have to say all the time regularly for you to consider her a talker. That may not happen until she's between three and five. And again, it may be a little disappointing for to hear that, and we certainly hope that the child will get it sooner than that. But I do think it helps prepare their expectations for what's more likely to happen than anything else. And they're not putting so much pressure on their child that they actually shut down communication or that they really limit that. And then that they're more likely to relax a little. And I don't mean relax in terms of not do anything about it, but just not have that intense pressure of you have to say it, you have to say it, you have to say it, their expectations, again, are more in line with what's more likely to happen. So I'll post that information so that you can take a look at that great, great information. Another, okay, so let's back up. We, we've, I've, I've gotten off a little bit. We were talking about dysarthria versus apraxia. She's asking, can a kid with Down syndrome present with both low muscle and have motor planning issues? Well, of course. That's probably, though, rarer than we might think. And here's the kicker. I think lots of these speech sound disorders look alike in very young children who are not talking. So be pretty careful. And I think this therapist obviously is because she said some really nice things. She was taught to treat the symptoms. She was taught that a label doesn't really matter. But she goes on and lists all of these very practical reasons that you might want to go ahead and get that diagnosis or or, um, give a parent or a child that specific diagnosis, you know, particularly for insurance funding, particularly uh, if services are based on having something more specific than a developmental delay uh, diagnosis. Certainly with Down syndrome, she already has the medical diagnosis. But again, you understand what I'm driving at. Sometimes that specificity is important for things other than what you're going to do in treatment. So let's just talk about the differences between dysarthria and apraxia. And again, we know that dysarthria is the diagnosis that she's most likely to have because she has low muscle tone because of the Down syndrome, okay? Let's think about apraxia. Apraxia in its truest sense of the form is supposed to be in the absence of neuromuscular involvement, meaning in the absence of low muscle tone. So can we really truly say that she has apraxia? Not in the sense of the word, but we know that children may have some motor planning issues. And again, it can certainly go together. And without me seeing this little girl, it's virtually impossible for me to offer what her diagnosis would or wouldn't be. But just in the presence of of knowing that she would have low muscle tone because of the Down syndrome diagnosis, that's more likely where I would lean. There's a great article at apraxia-kids.org, and it's about a little girl with Down syndrome who also 
got a diagnosis of apraxia, and it's written from a really great perspective because the speech-language pathologist who's written it is also this little girl's mother. So I think it's wonderful information. I found it years and years ago, um, so it's several years old, but I loved that um, she does a nice job of explaining why low tone alone cannot account for the primary speech difficulty of her little girl and like her little girl because she had so many other diagnostic indicators that would lead us to believe that she also had, had motor plane issues. She had real visibility in her errors, so that's something for this speech language pathologist to consider. If a child's errors are pretty consistent, it usually is more a dysarthric kind of error, but if the errors are variable, meaning that she might try to say the word dog five different ways over one session or in one day, and again, it's not predictable. She doesn't always use um, a sound substitution for D. She doesn't all the sound substitution. Usually children with dysarthria have more consistency with their vowel sounds than children with apraxia. Children with dysarthria usually have more vowel sounds than children with apraxia. So anytime that we're, we're looking at that severely restricted phonetic repertoire, we might lean more towards um, an apraxia diagnosis for those kinds of kids. Children with um, childhood apraxia of speech certainly have difficulty with sequencing sounds to produce words. Kids with dysarthria have that too, but again, with dysarthria, it's associated with the uh, um, muscle tone differences that will cause their respiratory differences. So again, they may have difficulty sequencing the sounds because it's harder for them to get the sounds, again, not only from an articulatory perspective, but also from that respiratory perspective. They don't always have enough support to sequence longer syllable strings. And so again, you may hear lots of just single sounds or single syllables with kids with dysarthria, and it's not a sequencing problem in the same way that it's a sequencing problem for a child with apraxia. Okay, so this article too will give you some really great points to consider when you are looking at which diagnosis is it. Be told you have to go with what the kid really can do and always start with looking at what a kid's strengths are, regardless if we're going to call it apraxia or dysarthria. The other speech pathologist that's treating this little girl is using the cough Nancy's approach, which is very good and very well respected for children with depression. And I love that um, the speech pathologist who wrote us the email was concerned, though, because she said, I don't think this is very motivating for her. She doesn't like to sit very long. I don't, I don't think that this is, uh, again, the approach is right, but the way that the, or the clinical approach is right, but we may be able to apply it in a different way. So I love that the speech pathologist who wrote us the email talked about taking the theory with the cards and then applying it. Now, it sounds like right now 
um, that she's already doing that. And that's a very, very good recommendation. And so if you understand the theory, that you understand how Nancy Kaufman teaches us to modify sounds and modify syllables and make words easier for a kid to say based on what he or she can already do, then you could take that progression or, or those list of words that are on the back of those flashcards and just use it as you play. And she gave a great example with the speech pathologist saying to the little girl, say, puh, and the little girl saying it or imitating it, and then now try pup. And so, again, I like the Kaufman approach because it does move a child toward a more mature way to pronounce that word, and it's very uh, well-grounded in um, phonological principles, meaning that some sounds are easier for children to produce than others, and so we would try to go for the easiest version of a word. And here's why this makes sense to me, too, is because even kids with typical development do that. We all know that babies may reduce the complexity of a word when they first begin to talk. They may not include all the sounds. They may not include all the syllables, but you know that's what they're trying to say. So that's why the Kaufman approach makes so much sense to me. And I would continue, if that has been successful with the school therapist and the school therapist has seen some luck with that, and if, if especially if that's how the little girl has started to imitate, directly imitate some single words, I would certainly think that that would be a worthwhile approach to consider. But here's something else that she she said that the little girl has about 15 word approximations, and she gave us a great description of those. And did you notice that there are some single words that are really functional here, like uh for up and poo for poop? And then she said sometimes she has, other words like by and high and ba for ball. But a lot of what she did, one, two, three, four of her, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words that she says frequently, excuse me, and more consistently were actually animal sounds. And so those are play sounds. Those are uh, little easier versions of words. And so what I would recommend that this therapist do is start there because there's, uh, you know, over half of the words that she says on her own are already at that level. So we know that that's what's interesting to her and what she's more likely to try to imitate on her own. So that's what I would do. I would start with those easier, earlier play sounds. And again, this is straight from my book, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers, and I'm not the only person who does that or who uses that approach. I'm not trying to say that, but certainly if we were looking at using a hierarchy, looking at where this little girl would fall on a continuum of what she is able to imitate, she would be down there at that level with those really simple vowel, vowel, um, I don't think she had any vowel consonant, but but those kinds of simpler syllable structures. And again, because she's age she is and because she likes to play and because she's not doing too much direct imitation when it's just that really traditional kill and drill speech therapy, I would start with those animal sounds. I would start with, and, oh, she has an exclamatory word with pop, she said. 
um, I, I would start with words like that because, again, she's going to be more likely to want to imitate those words. They will certainly be functional for her because it's going to be in the context of play and something that she likes to do. So that's exactly what I would do. I would take a list of exclamatory words and those earlier play sounds. And I may even back up a level from that. I would see what she can imitate with um, just even other little vocalizations like panting or like fake crying or um, any little sound effect kind of thing. I would try to get all of those things really going and get her really imitating at that level before I was too hard on the single words. Because just from what she's, just from the vocabulary list that I see here, that's meeting her where she is. That That's what she can already do. And and the little girl that I mentioned before, Emma Kate, and a couple of other of my little friends who've had Down syndrome, a little girl named Juliet, I really developed that whole chart that you that I use with building verbal imitation skills in toddlers in those children's living rooms. My little friend named Cameron, my other little guy uh, that I saw named Riley, these little friends of mine who've had Down syndrome, that, that's where I really solidified this approach. It's with these kinds of kids who let you know, don't ask me to do a real word. I'm not going to be terribly consistent with that yet, but you make it more fun and you make it easier and you're going to get much better participation from me because I feel like I can do it and because it's novel. It's it's cool when I'm imitating that versus something that's a little bit more difficult. So that's exactly what I would do is take take the list from building verbal imitation and tasks and look at, you know, level four, level five, and work toward those kinds of approximations first before I moved on to other single words. All right, that being said, she also said this little girl has lots and lots of signs, and it was so cute how she worded it. She says, also, what do I do with all those signs? <laughs> I just feel like she's ready to be more vocal and imitate, and I want to move to speech more than just signs for communication, especially because she's three and she's starting to have little friends, and she, the speech pathologist wants the three-year-old's little friends to be able to understand her. That is fantastic. And because she's able to do some vocalizations, you do want to go ahead and make sure that you are including lots and lots of um, models for her to imitate verbally. But don't forget about those signs just yet. She already has let you know that she's doing super with signs, that signs work for her, that it's communicative and truth be told. If she is difficult to understand right now, her mom and dad need her to do those signs. They need for her to keep using those to let them have an idea of what she wants. So I wouldn't stop with the signs at all, but i tell you what I would do. I would look at her list of what she can do with signs and pair that with, with phonemes, with sounds, both consonants and vowels, that you know she can already do. So she has an initial P for her word poo for poop. I would look for any of her signs that have an initial P and really encourage, do everything you can to get her to use uh, a syllable even to try to approximate the word that she's using with the sign. And, and you can do that a lot of different ways. A lot of kids really respond to um, exaggerating that initial sound. So if she were, you know, 
it's harder to do with uh, a stop sound like P or B, a word that, uh, a sound that, uh, again, that you're going to make, that a stop is a way to describe a sound, uh, the consonant sound where it doesn't continue. So like for pop, again, you can exaggerate that, but it's easier to do sounds that are continuants, meaning that they go on and on. So for a word like more, we would really emphasize that initial sound. And that may be a way that you can start to get her to vocalize and use her signs at the same time. Let me just say, I've had good luck with that with kids with Down syndrome, but I've also had some kids that in their, I think in their minds they've learned. I don't really have to say that because I'm already using my sign and that should be good enough for you. And, and kids are there. I just, I accept that. I love that they understand that their sign is communicative. I'm not going to discourage that. I would never, ever, ever, ever say, don't sign because that's why she's not talking because we know that's not true. But you may have to work a little harder to get her to start to use her sounds and start to try to talk when she's signing. And that's not always the case for children with Down syndrome or any child who's been a good signer in therapy. But you may have to work a little harder and you may have to pay a little bit more attention to it. You may have to get mom and dad really on board with that or brothers and sisters or even little friends. The other thing that I would do is if you have an opportunity to see her in her classroom uh, or with her little friends, do everything you can to make those signs um, okay for her to use in that environment because you would, again, never want to take that away from her. I would keep on with signs too. I, I would still work hard on speech. I would still, again, start at that level of looking at play sounds and exclaiming the words. But I also would keep teaching new signs, especially for words that she seems to want to say. But you know, there's, you know, say a multisyllabic word and she has very little real possibility of being able to produce that right now. I would certainly teach signs, continue to teach new signs for those kinds of words. So you really would have a pretty comprehensive treatment plan for this little girl. And guess what? That's perfect. <laughs> That's what we need to do. So let me just kind of summarize her before we move on to the second one. We're going to pay attention to her receptive language because one of the reasons that she may not have more words is because she truly may not understand what the word means. And again, I've been surprised when that's happened with some kids who seem to be really good signers, but then I kind of take a step back and make sure they're really, really, really understanding and following directions and are truly demonstrating that they understand um, what what they're signing. Because her, her gestural imitation may be so good that she's faked people out. And, and that's okay if that's happened. That's all right. You just realize what's happened and you back up and you work a little bit harder on teaching her new words receptively before you expect to get it expressively. So we're going to look at her receptive language. We're going to look at her signs as her main mode of expressive language right now. We would never want to take that away from her. So we're going to keep teaching new signs. We're going to keep teaching mom and dad new signs. We're going to make sure teachers are on board with that and are still signing with her. We're going to encourage her to vocalize in whatever way she can with her sign, even if it's an initial phoneme. Now, certainly we want more than just that initial sound, we never really work on sounds in isolation. We quickly, quickly, quickly move sounds into words. But at the same time, you kind of have to start with where she is. And if she can't do it, she can't do it. So you're going to get everything that you can right now. So try to really get 
sounds with her signs. And then lastly, oh, I already said, we're going to pull out those play words and explanatory words, words that are going to be more fun and make it more motivating for her to try to imitate. And we're going to put all of that in the context of play and real-life activities. So she's not stuck at the chair, you know, stuck at the table and in the chair with her flashcards when she obviously doesn't want to be there. Since that theory is sound and seems to have had some success, we want to take the material, take the theory from the Kaufman approach and then use it throughout play activities and throughout her daily routine so that she still gets to say those words and practice in that way and use those wonderful modifications uh, for sounds and for syllable structure, but at the same time, um, make it more meaningful for her. So I hope that that's given the speech pathologist who asked this question some new ideas. You were on the right track. You were answering your own questions, which really will let you know, yeah, what you're thinking is good. It's, it's, those are the same kinds of questions I would have. Those are the same considerations I would have. So love, love, love that question. All right, we have about 20 minutes left, so let's unpack this next situation and talk about it. She describes that her next little friend was, as a three-year-old little boy with severe expressive receptive language delay. She said she just started with him about two months ago, so he's still a kid that she's getting to know. She says, Mom, initially he had about 40 words and difficulty following more complex directions. Okay, some of you may have heard severe expressive receptive language delay, but then you hear 40 words and you're like, oh, that's not severe. He's already talking. Yes, it is because he's over three. And three-year-olds should have hundreds of words. Let me say that again. Typically, developing three-year-olds know hundreds and say hundreds of words. If you have good reference on that, let me direct you to Linguist Systems' website. They have a great handout called Communication Milestones. And you can take a look at the number of words in a toddler with typical language development versus the little guys that we see in early intervention. And so it is correct that she would describe a three-year-old with 40 words as a severe expressive language delay. So let me just kind of get that out there. All right, so let me just read the whole email. I'm getting off again. Let me read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and tease it out. Uh, she said, so starting with him, I figured, okay, let's bump up his vocabulary, imitation, desire to communicate for request, and incorporate receptive goals as well. She said, there are no concerns for autism at this point. He loves to engage in play. He plays with any toy I present. He smiles and laughs and presents with good joint attention. But with signs or single words he has, he does not want to use them to make a request. He just sits there and waits. She says, I have tried sabotage withholding, placing no demands, ignoring, just playing with mom, and then praising her for her signs and single words. And she says, but then all of a sudden he's doing something else and he busts out with mom, give me a fish for goldfish, or mom, come here. And she says, wait, what? He talks in phrases? And again, I love how conversational she was in my email. She certainly has listened to the show before and she knows that's how I talk and that's perfectly fine with me. And so she goes on to say, I had no idea. And she's talking about that he could talk in phrases. And she says, then I, mom, and she said, oh, yeah, sometimes he talks like that just to me 
or other people he knows very well. So she says, now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this could be selective mutism. She says, luckily, I referred him to be tested for preschool speech therapy services, which he is starting this fall. So over the summer, I'm going to really keep seeing if he warms up to me. Will he use more language? She says, I often want to change up therapy and go to a park or do more outside play and incorporate sensory. I've noticed some behaviors with crying. If he doesn't get what he wants but I ignore him or just play alone, he comes back around. She said, any thoughts for the kiddo who loves to play but doesn't seem to care if you give it to him or not and just waits you out and is quiet the entire session? She says, he's just so confusing since he actually can and will use phrases at times. She says, I think he probably has more than 40 words, but it's so hard to see where he really is since he doesn't want to display all of his skills during our one hour of play. And then she goes on and writes some really sweet things to me at the end. So let's talk about this little guy. What do you think? If I were sitting there with you face-to-face, would you have considered selective mutism for that? Would you? I know some of you are thinking yes, and some of you are thinking no. And, again, without us seeing this little guy, we really don't know what's going on. Right? <laughs> we can just make our best guesses. So here's what I would say about that. Even if he were just saying, well, let me just say this. He's saying, Mom, give me fish, and Mom, come here. Those are great phrases. However, if he were truly typically developing, he would have some longer, more sentence-like productions. He would, because that's how typically developing three-year-olds talk. They may not have mastered, or they have not mastered, all of the grammatical complexity. They may really simplify some things, but three-year-olds really can talk in paragraphs. And they, typically developing three-year-olds, can really use much longer sentences than these three-word things, three- and four-word things that she says that he said. Now, why is that important? To get a diagnosis of selective mutism, your skills have to be normal in at least one setting. So for mom to say he, he talks like that sometimes, it really gives you an indication that there's still a delay going on. And when there's a a delay going on, it really doesn't truly qualify for selective mutism diagnosis. Now, might he be more comfortable talking with mom? Might this diagnosis have some validity in that he seems to only be comfortable communicating with people that he loves and knows really, really well, sure. In my mind, that's a personality difference. That's a shy kid. And and we don't really, as speech-language pathologists, treat shy kids, right? There's more going on than that. And if that were just the case, I doubt that this mom would have really brought him to therapy. I doubt she would, she would have said, maybe she would have, because I have seen one little girl um, who – really did truly qualify for a diagnosis of selective mutism. But here's the deal. When she was home in her own setting with her own family, there were absolutely no concerns about her ability to communicate. At two, she was using sentences. She was communicating for her wants and needs all the time. 
She was fine with her sisters. You know, they had lots going on in their house. And when you were at home with her, you know, I certainly saw videos when she was perfectly normal, perfectly typical. But the kicker was anytime she left her home or at the beginning with me in her home because she did not know me, she didn't talk at all. She certainly never opened her mouth at preschool, even when she went to her grandparents' house and say, or somewhere she went all the time, she wasn't comfortable enough to talk. But it's in, in just dramatic contrast to how she communicated when she was home, on her own turf, no, no disruptions, nothing for her to make her be afraid, okay? So that's how you really, really, really know. I think a lot of times we jump to kind of the selective mutism diagnosis when we hear a kid who's doing exactly what this kid is doing, meaning that he's demonstrating higher skills than maybe mom has reported or that we're able to see in a therapy session. And let me just say this, just because we're experts in communication and just because we're supposed to be able to get kids to talk more around us because we know all of this stuff and we're great kids and we know the tricks, it doesn't always ring true with these kids who have these social kinds of shyness issues anyway. Now, she she was so good, and she was so um, – I love how she deliberately laid out this is not a social skill issue in terms of him being on the spectrum, meaning he's really engaged. He likes her. He wants to play. But it's when he really has to use words to communicate is when he really starts to fall apart. Now, I love that she mentioned that she was doing some signs with him because she's trying to get that I do something to get something point really, really established. I like that. I think that if, if it works for him, great. If you're not seeing any luck with that, you may have to back up and kind of use a picture. So maybe the picture exchange communication system. And again, some of you are probably thinking, why would you do that with a kid who has 40 words? Because, guys, if she has tried all of the things that have already, all of the things that, that, that we would know to try, she's done with withholding. She's done sabotage. She's tried to go the other way with placing no demands whatsoever. She's tried even a real behavioral approach, meaning ignore what you don't want to see. Ignore him when he doesn't talk, and that would entice him to want to talk to you more. She's tried just to, to really reinforce uh, other people in his environment for talking in hopes that he'll see, hey, she's really playing with mom. When mom signs, when mom talks, mom gets what she wants. Nothing. So far, she has gotten very little results with those things. So then I think, well, maybe it is that he really doesn't, feel like he should um, initiate communication. And a trial with text at this point would not hurt. Now, this is what I would do with mom. I would say, look, we are just trying this. We know he can talk. We've heard these words. Occasionally, he pops out with these phrases, and I'm going to get to that word pop out in just a minute. We know that he can talk. But what we want to do right now is really get that, that piece going where um, he has another way to initiate communication. Now, why would you introduce PECs if, you, you know, if it's not going to be a system he needs all the time, blah, 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 blah. I can just hear some of you now raising these concerns. I would only do it for a limited amount of time, 
and I would just do it so he understands, oh, you really need me to perform. And if he won't do it verbally and he won't do it with a sign, we're going to back him down one more level and see if he can do it with a picture, okay? And it could just be that it would be as simple as that. Now, is it ever really as simple as that? No. But it's certainly something that I would try. Just for a session or two, just see how it goes. And again, do lots of reassuring with mom with, I don't think this is going to be something that permanently he will do, but let's just give it a shot. Let's see if this is kind of where the breakdown is. If she still can't get anything going with requesting with that, then what I would do is really take a look at his strongest, strongest, strongest motivators only use that and see if that can't make a difference and she said he likes to play with anything but he just won't request well I would I would try to up those stakes a little bit and see if she can get some things going down the other thing that I would do is really take a step back with um, seeing well he probably imitates actions in play because she said he's a good player. I would just do anything I could to get some imitation going. And it might be, if he likes books, I would take a little book. There's a cute little book with Sesame Street. It's called Elmo Says. Barney has another one that's like that. Um, I think it's Barney Says. And then there's a great Eric Carl book that's, oh, gosh, I've forgotten the name of it. I'll see if I can find it in just a second. But it's along the same kinds of um, avenues as that, Gestural imitation, meaning that Barney or Elmo or the penguin in the Eric Carl book raises his arms or flaps his arms or whatever he does, and we want to copy character has done. Sometimes a book can really help with that. Um, let me see if I can. We pulled it up here. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, I can't find it. But I'll, we'll try to look and get the name of that book. But anyway, it's a cute little picture book. Where, oh, that's it, that's it. It's from head to toe, and it's a board book, but again, it's a little bit more mature because there are zoo animals there, like there's an ape that's scratching his head, and there's a giraffe that's doing something with his neck. And so, again, your purpose is you want him to really get in the habit of imitating you, so that might be something that I could try. It may not work. <laughs> But it's certainly worth a try. And, again, get mom to try it. Um, and mom is already involved in sessions, which, again, is a really good idea. The other thing that I want to talk about with him really quickly in this last few minutes is just because using these phrases, it doesn't sound like he uses them consistently. So that's certainly something I would explore more with mom. You want to have her keep a word journal this week that she writes down Everything that he says on his own. For him, I might even get her to write down anything that he imitates. So you can take a good look at, say, maybe not the whole week, but over two or three days. Or what mom might do when he's really, really talking with her, and this is so easy now that we all have these phones, mom might video him so that you can really get an idea of what he is doing at home and you can truly decide, okay, this is just a pop-out phrase, meaning that he's not really planning to say this. I mean, of course he wants to that, that message generated in his little brain, but it just kind of popped out. The reason that I'm talking about this 
is because sometimes children with apraxia can do those little phrases because it's on their own terms. It's just kind of popped out before they even knew they were talking. And that may be what you're looking at here more so than other things. And again, without seeing this little guy, I, I can't say what's going on for sure. But certainly pop-out phrases are something that we see a lot in these kinds of kids. Particularly, that might make me think about that with him because he doesn't really imitate a lot of single words. And he doesn't really seem to know how to use his voice on command. Or, and, and, but he's a smart little guy in that he wants to play. He likes it. He certainly should be motivated to talk. But on some level, he knows can't do it. I can't really control when I talk and when I don't talk. And I really think just by the the way that this speech pathologist has written her email, she's a play-based therapist. She knows what she's doing. She's applying all of the strategies that are so successful with toddlers and young preschoolers. So she's done all of that right. So there has to be some other reason that he's not been more imitative with her or more verbal. And apraxia is something that I would consider. I would look at that. I would if, Now, if you get the word journal back from mom and she has 78 different phrases that he said with her at home, well, yeah, it is then a real shyness kind of issue. It could lean toward that selective mutism piece, perhaps, perhaps. But let me just say this other thing about selective mutism. That's really a psychological issue. So you're going to have to have somebody else on the team working on that. That's not to say that a speech pathologist can't address it. I certainly had good success with my little girl that I worked with. What? Let me tell you what we did with her, just in case. <laughs> that's what this turns out to be, and you need some additional ideas. We started with her, with her, her using her voice at preschool in very predictable, very routinized ways. So she didn't have to really think about it. It was certainly something that she knew. We did a lot of stuff at circle time so that, and the teacher was so fantastic about participating and really putting her um, between really verbal. So she did, a that, that teacher um, did, did a lot of, um, of those common little games and songs and, finger plays and rhymes. And when she asked questions, she really encouraged all of the kids to kind of scream out their answers. That won't work for every teacher. That won't work for every family. But it worked for this little girl because she got really comfortable in that she could talk and she could kind of, you know, if the if the teacher, say, was reading a book and she would say, um, you know, Let's pretend it's something like brown bear. And she might do the great clothes method with verbal routines. And she might say, brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? I see a goldfish looking at, and then all the kids would scream out, me. And that really got my little friend to start to try to vocalize when her little friend did it. Over time, we did it where the teacher would ask the kids, a question, let's say, that everybody's answer was the same, like, whose turn is it now? Mine. Whose turn is it now? Mine. Whose turn is it now? Mine. And if she were the seventh or eighth kid in the row 
and there wasn't, you know, too much pressure and she was having a good time, she started to talk in those things too. Other things that we did uh, were using a little book. It was more like, it wasn't really a, communica- a communication book per se. It was more a little about me book. So, it, again, the clothes method was really effective here. That You know, there was a picture of her, and it said, my name is, and then we would flip the picture. Um, here are pictures of my, and it's, you know, her mom and her dad. And so that's what she would say. And the teacher would read that to her, and I would read that with her at school. And let me just say, for weeks she did nothing. But after a little while, she started to really, you know, in her tiniest, teeniest little voice, say, you know, of the picture of her mom and dad, here is my mommy, here is my dad, and just very gradual progress so that over time she became more comfortable talking at school. Now, if you have a psychologist on her team, she is going to have other ideas that you can easily or his team, I'm sorry, we're talking about a little boy, that you'll be able to operate too. Let me just say, I doubt selective mutism is all that's going on, um, just based on what you've told me about him. But if you feel like that's where it is, I think you said that, she said that he's getting tested for preschool, and they will certainly, hopefully, tease that out, and you'll have some additional help with him. So those are my opinions about what I would do for both of these children. And I just want to thank the speech pathologist. I didn't get permission to use her name, so I'm not going to. But I just want to thank her for sending these questions in. I I get so much feedback about shows like this where therapists say, you know, I heard that idea. You were talking about this kid, but it reminded me of a kid that I see. And it just gave me some additional things to think about, especially if back at the beginning of the show when we were talking about differential diagnosis and teasing out dysarthria versus apraxia, I gave you kind of a loose little definition of that and then some things that we would look for. And that may be something that you need to think about with some of the guys that you're seeing. Uh, some of you may have needed to hear, don't stop signing. Keep keep talking, keep working towards work, but don't stop your signs. Some of you today may have really needed to hear that better explanation of selective mutism or of pop-out words so that you're really thinking, oh, I thought this was one thing, but it could be this. So I hope in anything you've gotten some good information even if it's not applicable to the child that you're seeing right now, you can store it away and really think about in your mind what um, what information might be relevant to the child, even that you would see in the future. All right, that is all for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have questions you'd like me to tackle on the podcast, You can email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com and I will be more than happy to help you. Thanks so much. Have a great day.